When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. At just after 2pm on Sunday afternoon, the hundreds of Manchester United fans outside Old Trafford broke through a barrier of small red fences on the Old Trafford forecourt. In doing so, they moved into an area just outside the Munich Tunnel, where a much larger, permanent gate was in place. United fans stayed there for a while, protesting against the Glazer family, Ed Woodward, and protesting for a 50 plus one ownership model and a change in football governance. Things were peaceful, security guards watched on and let things continue. And the police were yet to turn up in proper force at that point. A few fans scaled the fence, went over it, probably 20 or 30 of them. That took them into the Munich tunnel where if you're walking towards the Stretford end at its exit of the tunnel, you first encounter the press entrance, then the director's entrance, then the broadcaster's entrance before finally, just before the Stretford end, you'll find the player's entrance. Soon after, the 20 or 30 fans scaled the gate. A door on the right of the fence was opened, forced open by United fans and 200 plus, 200 maybe a bit over, fans filed through the door eventually the door was closed 10 or 15 minutes later uh, rumours were going round with no one really having any signal that the fans who had got through that door had managed to get onto the pitch and five minutes after that the couple of hundred fans re-emerged from the same door they'd gone through one of them carrying a corner flag three of them carrying match balls and one carrying a training coat while they'd been inside one had taken an overhead kick in front of the Stretford end others had climbed the goals others had tucked the ball away and done knee slides in front of the Stretty but they'd also made global news. It would lead the BBC 10 o'clock news bulletin and spread to CNN headlines too. Match of the day two ditched highlights for the first 10 minutes of their show and discussed it on BBC Five Live on Monday morning. The conversation continued. The same was true on Radio 4, Talk Sport and many other news stations, TV and audio and all of the newspapers too. What is for sure is an impact had been made. Welcome to the Manchester United Weekly Podcast, recording on Monday afternoon, just under 24 hours after we received news that the Manchester United-Liverpool match had been postponed. It's the first Premier League match in history to be postponed due to fan action. On another side of Old Trafford, while all of that was going on that I just spoke about, fans gathered on John Gilbert's way outside the only official entrance into Old Trafford during uh, the COVID-19 crisis. All cars and visitors have to cross over that bridge that leads to the W2 car park. 
fans gathered there and did the same, protesting against the Glazer ownership and football regulations and demanding more. Banners, flares, chants. Gary Neville and referee Michael Oliver encountered the protesters, heard their chants, but they were allowed to pass through without any trouble. Meanwhile, elsewhere in Manchester at the Lowry Hotel, where the United team stayed before matches, another set of fans gathered and protested too. They were eventually dispersed by a large force of Greater Manchester Police. The three protests together led to the game being called off. Um, so what's the fallout? Pretty big, obviously a postponed game, a big one, global news and global focus on the Glazer ownership of United. Jack, we'll move on later to discussing a fantastic win against Roma in midweek, six goals in the European semi-final. And we'll also preview the second leg and have our youth alone and women's roundup. But first, to me, the truth of this process is that it has made a huge impact and that is what it was designed to do. I mean, what is a protest if not to cause some disruption and make a statement. Yeah. I mean, ultimately to its core, that is what a protest is designed to do in the short term. Obviously in the long term, there are wider goals in this case around the ownership of Manchester United. But in the short term, what you can hope for is to be able to make a statement that is loud enough that it rings out far beyond Old Trafford, far beyond Manchester, far beyond even the UK and in that sense this has to go down as one of the most immediately successful protests that that I've ever seen obviously there is a a much larger fight still to be had and we've seen the open letter this morning from the Manchester United Supporters Trust to Joel Glazer laying out some of the demands of fans and we'll see what the response to that ends up being but I mean you couldn't have really asked for much more on Sunday and from the immediate response to the protest and having the game postponed, and as you said, completely dominating football coverage up and down this country, it would have been, and elsewhere for that for that matter, there was CNN alerts going on off on my phone all day about Manchester United yeah. fans, and that isn't something that is typical. I think the the biggest thing that you can say to this is that the game being postponed, despite the fact that you know we all want to see United hopefully beat Liverpool. This is far bigger than just one game. It's far bigger than even just one season, to be quite honest. And it would have been so easy if the game had gone ahead for the headlines to be switched and moved towards whatever happened in the game, whatever controversy there was with VAR or a great goal, a mistake, whatever. But without the game going ahead, the focus remains squarely on this protest and squarely on the Glazer family. And that is exactly what we hope to get out of this protest. Yeah, I think it was beyond the wildest dreams of what those who went to protest could have hoped for. Having one of the biggest games in in the English football calendar, obviously this year it, it doesn't mean quite as much, but having one of English football's largest, most historic games called off as a result of fan action. As you say, that that is success. What is protest without causing disruption? Successful protest movements are never successful without breaking laws. That is the nature of them. They are there to cause disruption. Now, there's, there is a line that can be crossed and for a few individuals on Sunday, that line was crossed. I don't... The, the disruption caused by breaking into the stadium, in the process, people getting hurt is is obviously not what you want. But I think... I think adults should be able to have some nuance and also be able to have a conversation about protests without immediately having to fall back on faux outrage. Yes, you can be saddened and angered that 
uh, a police officer was hurt by a flying bottle. You can be saddened that two other police officers were received minor injuries, but see through the the smoke, see through the the flares and the smoke, and look at the bigger picture. This is a consequence of of protest and disruption. This was not a violent protest. There was one moment of trouble, which I can explain if if people or you would like. But as a general thing, this was a peaceful protest, which after a couple of incidents led to bottles being thrown and flares being thrown, not lit flares, I should, I should say. Um, it's the, the, the truth is fans gathered outside Old Trafford and chanted for an hour before kickoff, before leaving for a pint in front of watching the game. That headline wouldn't have done anything. It would have been a small sub headline underneath a match report on Manchester United, Liverpool. This made global news. It was the front page of every national newspaper. That is that's that's success. It I think that there's a few things at play here, and I think firstly, it's just that protests are almost universally people, especially in the media, seem completely unable to have an actual mature conversation about protests. Because even if the goals are agreed with, and we've seen almost everyone in in the media and on TV networks up and down England uh, across the world being universally in support of the cause of these fans, whether that is specific to Manchester United and specific to wanting the Glazers to sell the club or whether it's more broadly in opposition to the European Super League. There has not been a single person in in the media who has supported these ideas. And yet as soon as there are some images of fans gathering and flares going off, it becomes the most unacceptable thing that we've ever seen. And that is something that isn't unique to football protests for whatever reason, seem to be a lightning rod around which people in the media think that they can get some clicks and some easy brownie points for declaring their love for defending the people who are tasked with keeping the peace, in this case, the police and Old Trafford security. But don't actually look at the broader context around it and remind themselves of the goals of protests in the first place. How on earth can you be sitting there telling us that you hate the European Super League and want the Glazers to sell and that these owners are the ones ruining English football. But then at the same time, when some fans do something that is powerful enough and makes a strong enough statement to actually cause the needle to move on that front, all of a sudden falling falling behind on on the side of of public order above everything else. That is completely opposite to the point of protest. And I think the other thing in Britain, especially around football you know that this country has a long history and and in some some cases a pretty dark history of football hooliganism and I think there is so much ingrained I guess collective memory in some way of of those dark days in English football which were were bad you know football was not a a welcoming place for a long time in in the 20th century in England those days thankfully are, are pretty much over but I think there is so much there is so much so much work to be done to overcome the memories of that because i think as soon as so many people see a group of football fans gathering and flares going off the automatic assumption is that they are all violent they're all there for a fight they're all pissed out of their minds yeah and that simply isn't the case at manchester united at the protest yesterday there was one or two very isolated incidents 
of, I wouldn't even call it violence, but, you know, of scuffles between supporters and the police, which, to be honest, from everything that, that I have seen through videos and, and reports from people who were at the protest, that these were very much both sides instigating that escalation. Well, yeah. And just, people just use that to try to discredit everything that's going on. Yeah, sorry, just to interrupt. The, 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 the problem is, yes, there, there are isolated incidents of idiots who try to provoke other people and do engage in whatever you want to call it, acts of, of violence. There are other people who join in when they see stuff being thrown and just decide to join in. Mob mentality, you can, you can call it whatever you like. But the truth is that the policing of football fans in this country has always been terrible. And nothing would show that more than 1989 and, and the Hillsborough disaster. The policing of football fans has always been negative and has always treated football fans as a mob, even when they haven't been acting like that because of that dark history of, of hooliganism in the 70s and 80s. And yeah, you're right, that's fallen away. But still the, the, the treatment of football fans as animals continues. And that leads to, I mean, it, there's a bigger point to be made about the policing of protests is always heavy handed. And uh, some people would say that protests get violent when the police arrive. And in this case, from what I saw, that was true. Things were, were peaceful. The police arrived and, and the moment of violence around me was a man climbed onto a platform to try and retrieve a ball that everyone was hitting into the sky. He was pulled down by police. He got angry, stupidly tried to fight them. He was put onto the floor, hit with batons from a couple of sides, probably th- three, maybe four policemen. I can't remember exactly. Other fans got angry at that, tried to intervene. And that uh, from that moment, instead of diffusing the situation, suddenly the police bring in a whole set of reinforcements, a tactical aid unit. They stormed out of the Munich tunnel, ran at fans, pushed them back, including pushing people back who weren't kind of, not people who had fists up or bottles in hand or throwing bottles, people who had just stood there, including one person who stood there and was shoved onto the ground. It was one stupid moment in three hours from one individual in the protest. And then the, the what followed was caused by heavy-handed policing that instead of diffusing a situation made it, considerably worse and that is that that is a trend that exists in policing of football fans not just in protests but also in attending matches and and this brings me on to another point is that media coverage of this while it's actually I mean lots of coverage has actually been better than I expected of this and I was pleased to see that but too often it, in Britain media coverage is focused squarely on the worst participants of a protest. It doesn't matter what the protest is for, whether it's for United or whether it's for a political cause on both sides of the argument, but too often it's on the worst participants of a protest without being able to see the nuance that the vast majority of people can see that while violence and throwing bottles is unnecessary and unacceptable, the cause is just and, and deserves respect and conversation. I don't think media coverage should begin with one policeman was injured as blah, blah, blah. It it can start on the course of the protest and come to the consequences. That's maybe a slight side point. But the, the, the point is, I mean, we've ended up focusing on, on the violence, but um, I just think, yeah, the, the tr- truth is it, it was successful and the angle was being directed to a family and a set of individuals who have leached off of an 149-year-old 
community institution, national institution, without any accountability or even any regret. And the Premier League can come out and say, fans have many channels through which to protest, but... and let's not pretend this is the only time this is true, but nothing shows they're more out of touch than claiming that fans have enough channels through which to protest because for 16 years, United have been failed by by government and failed by the football governing bodies. And that is what's led to this. 16 years of, of being completely ignored and not just United, but also fans of Bury and Macclesfield and Bolton and Blackpool and Wigan and, and, and Liverpool even 10 years ago. Uh, had to resort to their to their own measures to rid themselves of the ownership of Hicks and Gillett. This it's a it's a long long history of this in in the game. Yeah, I mean, as we've seen this week and the last two weeks more than ever recently, football, despite the, its commercialization, remains a sport and a game and even a business driven by fans, and fans should always retain hopefully power within their clubs and informal structures, but also the power to do this and to show their power and the way that we show power when we don't have any power in the boardroom through shares or a financial stake in the club is through protests. And this is exactly what we would have expected to happen. I mean, this is absolutely I think the natural course that this was always going to take, this was an unacceptable thing to this was an unacceptable thing for the Glazers to do and it it had to to lead to something like this we, it was completely out of the question to just return to the status quo not that people were happy with the status quo but you know the protests weren't at their fullest in recent uh, years it was completely out of the question that we could ever return to that so I from from my perspective I think the protest was as successful as we could have hoped for. It has gathered far more media attention than I I ever could have wished for. I think full credit has to go to everyone involved for the statement that they were able to create. And ultimately now it, it comes down to building on that momentum. And I think the letter from the supporters trust is a start in that, Yeah, you know, this is a, as we've said before about the Super League, this is a sort of once in a generation, maybe once in a lifetime opportunity to restructure English football and as one of the biggest clubs in English football that is always going to generate some of the biggest headlines we have to capitalise on that momentum on this moment and I think this is a good good start but it needs to be the start of the catalyst for, for more campaigning to change the structure of the club to increase the power of fans and hopefully force the Glazers hand into selling at best or if they flat out refuse reduce their stake in the club and increase the role yeah. of fans in, deci- in decision-making processes. Yeah. The, the, the last two weeks have taught fans that they're not as powerless as we thought. I think that's that's the big thing, is, is for a decade, two decades, three decades, fans have begun to see no no way of, of protesting. That's why uh, Glazer, protest, Glazer out protests haven't been as big as they were in 2010 until yesterday. That's why kind of there was chants sung in 2019 and 2020, but it, it wasn't, it wasn't the same as 2010 or 2005 because for, since then there has been kind of an acceptance that, that there's nothing you can do 
just a frustration that what, what else can you do? These people aren't going and no one's going to remove them for us. I think, I think the the point you make about, um, I think both the very clever thing and the uh, frustrating thing about yesterday's protest was that it was, it was completely unofficially organized. Must and the Red Army and other United fan groups did not claim responsibility or organize the protest. And and that was deliberately done so that in future meetings with the club, Must and, and TRA and other groups can say, can say that, that that wasn't us. You can't punish us for that. And that's very sensible. The frustrating thing about it is it meant that the message of the protest rather than had it been more organized rather than it being to demand for wider changes in football it ended up because it because glazer out fits to a song easier than 50 plus one and those chants already exist and etc it's easier to for the the, the protest ended up basically being a, a glazer out protest rather than a let's reform football as well as glazer out which was i th- i mean it's a, a smaller point, but it, it should be noted. You, you mentioned the must letter um, that, that came out this morning on Monday and, and they ask for the following four things and ask for a response um, in public and in writing by Friday. I can't see that happening, but this is an open letter to Joel Glazer and they said, we have a four point plan for you to do that, to restore trust and to, to find a way forward. Number one, willingly and openly engage and promote the government initiated fan led review and use it as an opportunity to rebalance the current ownership structure in the favor of supporters. Number two, appoint independent directors to the board to protect the interest of the club as a football club, not as uh, the shareholders. Number three, work with must and supporters to put in place a share scheme accessible to all that has the same voting rights as the Glazer family so that it's possible for the Glazer family shareholding to be reduced to a minority or be bought out altogether. And number four, commit to full consultation with season ticket holders on any significant changes to the future of the club, including the competitions we play in. So protecting against a repeat of the Super League. Those four, I think, those four suggestions are, I think, both very sensible and the perfect level of demands. It's not saying sell the club because that's that ultimately is not going to work. I think this must statement is very... I think that's the right thing to be asking for. Do you? Yeah, I agree. It's something we talked about last in the last episode that this it, this isn't going to work. It's not going to go anywhere if it, this is just sort of angry fans shouting their demands that can just be completely ignored and brushed off by by owners as ridiculous and outlandish and something they don't need to respond to. By being very sensible in what we've asked for, by being, I think, very not overly ambitious, I think is is probably the right word in that we probably all want to see the Glazers sell, but we also know that that's not something that they are ever going to respond to. This has to be something that, you know, we all, the Glazers ultimately are the ones with the power at this point. And so we have to work with them as much as we might not want to, to improve the situation. This is probably the most likely way that we can get them to the table to actually enter into any sort of discussion and actually engage with any process in good faith with the fans to reform how the football club is run. Absolutely. Um, I think we should move on to talk about on the pitch stuff and not fans on the pitch, but players on the pitch and and playing very, very well. A fantastic midweek win. Um, I mean, we really should have probably been leading by three or four goals at half time. We played, I think we played really well in the first half. 
Uh, the first goal was absolutely fantastic. The the two goals given away were really poor. In the end, at full time, we'd scored five brilliant goals and a penalty. Cavani had got a double. He's got to stay, and Bruno was magnificent for the first time in a while. It was a it was a it was a great European semi final night. United, the first team to score six goals in the European semi final since 1964 and Real Madrid. And I mean, United don't score six in Europe very often. Just before full time, I was checking this, and I think I uh, it was the eleventh time United have scored six in any European competition, and that's including the Intercity Fairs Cup and all of that shite. And I think that's out of three hundred ninety three games, which shows how rare it is. Just a, a, a great shame that fans couldn't be there to witness it. Again, we said that a lot this season, but what a, what a great win! I mean, I, I can't remember a second or well, any half of any United game really in the last few years that I've enjoyed quite like that from the very first moment that we came out for the second half we looked completely galvanised we looked like a, a machine to be quite honest and I'm actually with you that at half time I was obviously extremely disappointed with how the half had, had ended up but I actually don't think we played particularly badly in the first half we had some really good moments going forward Roma were hanging on to some degree Yeah, the second goal that we conceded in particular was was very, very poor. The first goal, I think it was a bit of bad luck, I think, from from Pogba, obviously, with the ball flicking up and hitting his hand. But at that point, I, I, it didn't look too promising for us if we were potentially going back with a 2-1 defeat, maybe a 2 all draw if we're lucky. You know, that doesn't look like a great result at home. And, and in the second half, I mean, we just exploded. It has to go down as one of our best ever 45 minutes in Europe it it really was incredible to watch the way that we carved through Roma I think what it showed me is is the importance of that trio of Cavani Pogba and yeah. Bruno Fernandes to me when the Brilliant. three of them are on the pitch together we look a completely different outfit in attack we look so fluid we look so dangerous in in so many different ways and then when you have the directness of Rashford out wide as well I mean, we have so many ways to beat a team. We've said before that at times we're a little bit one-dimensional in that, especially when you play sort of Rashford, Martial, maybe Dan James on the right, you become pretty much just a team of fast, direct players that want to get in behind and run at people. But when you have Cavani, who's willing to come short and, and long, great movement in the box... You have Fernandez, obviously, his box of tricks, his brilliant vision, able to pick a pass and willing to try almost anything. You have Rashford on one side, offering his pace, his directness, his willingness to run at people, running behind. And then Pogba, who offers us something completely different. He wants the ball to feet. He'll come a little bit deeper. He'll come inside. He wants to link up, link the play with Fernandez and provide more service to Cavani. I mean, that, that quartet, but specifically that trio of Cavani, Pogba and Fernandez it transforms us into a seriously good side. And to me, that trio with maybe a new striker replacing Cavani, we'll see what happens on that, on that front. But that trio to me is is the key to us moving on to the next step and becoming a seriously good team. Yeah, they were, all three of them were, were brilliant. And I, I actually think, I think what really pleased me, this is kind of a side point. I feel like because we're a few days after the game, we can move on from saying how good it was. But the, the to isolate Pogba first half he, he gives away a penalty unfortunate in the way it hits his hand but his hand shouldn't be up there and the, the the reality is a defender would never slide on the ground like that inside the penalty area so um, 
Whereas Popper would, and that's just a difference in experience or knowledge of, of defending. He also, I think, played a part in the second goal we conceded by not getting back quick enough and, and closing down the space, which allowed Roma to move on that left wing and then Jekyll to score. In the 10 minutes after that goal, he looked kind of off it and he looked frustrated and um, he was kind of giving up on a couple of runs, whether that was forward or backwards. And he, he cut that kind of classic Pogba figure you sometimes see when United are losing. But then after that came what we love to see more from him, which is a player dragging the team forward and playing just absolutely brilliantly. And that for me was really pleasing to see him overcome. I don't know if it's a mentality block, but I think it's something we have often seen Pogba when United are losing, have a bit of a, a, a mental block and, and start getting more and more frustrated. I think we sometimes see it with Bruno as well. These are great players, but that's the reality. But this time, Pogba really kind of managed to get his, his head back in the game and then perform brilliantly. Yeah, I mean, I think we often we often underestimate how, how difficult that actually is. I mean, anyone who's played football knows if you make a mistake or give away a penalty, something like that, especially in a big game, it's it's really, really difficult to recover, even though it might not be at the forefront of your mind, it, your confidence goes. And I think, yeah, you're right. We have seen that affect players, Pogba and Fernandes included, as I think you might expect. But though, I mean, the way that we responded was absolutely brilliant. That first, I mean, the, the Cavani goal straight after half time was the big moment of the game, I think. Firstly, what a finish. But second, it just settled the team down, I think, so much. It, it would have been very easy I think to if if you have a couple of chances that you miss at the start of the second half start thinking you know is this one of those days in the first half we'd com- almost completely dominated Roma but went in 2-1 behind and you start to wonder if this just isn't your night in the semi-final Hoodoo is is going to strike again but yeah. that goal from Cavani after half time really set the game up for us and then uh, you know we've known this for a while but our attacking players are up there with the best in the world and when they're on form, when they're playing at their best, we are a very, very difficult team to stop. And I think we just we just proved that to the nth, the nth degree possible. You know, the some of the football we were, we were playing was absolutely electric. It was brilliant to watch. It really was. And I, I think you have to give full credit to the likes of Fernandez and Pogba, like you said, from and Pogba in particular for recovering from that first half mistake, and also to Solskjaer for not panicking yeah. at half time. I think probably the vast majority of United fans probably would have wanted to make a sub at half time and change the game and, and Solskjaer didn't panic he had faith in what was happening and in the the plans that we'd set out and it, and it you know paid off magnificently yeah it's as much a skill as to know when not to change something as it is to to change something when it's needed yeah. um and yeah Solskjaer got that absolutely and it's what we've said on. before that Solskjaer often we feel that Solskjaer is a little bit too reactive to whether it's the scoreline or the match situation. But in this case, I think he was he was very, very good in sort of realising that even though we were behind, the, the larger trends in the game had good signs for United. Yeah. And it wasn't a time to panic. We had been dominating the game. It was just a chance of, of creating those openings. And I think he did very well not to to panic and just react to, to the scoreline, which I think, to be honest, I, I certainly was, you know, thinking yeah. that this was another semi-final we were going to lose another day that just wasn't going to go our way. And, and I think he deserves so much credit for, for being able to focus on, as I said, the larger trends happening in the game and to not panic in that moment. Yeah, 
Okay, let's go to uh, youth and women's roundup and then we'll preview the second leg and Aston Villa. No under-23s game this week for United, but the under-18s won 4-2 against Leeds. Goals from Dylan Hugerwerf and Charlie Wellens, as well as a Charlie McNeil brace. Two goals in three minutes from the informed striker, whose goal tally just keeps going up and up this season. Um, brilliant so far. The women's team uh, won their win at Bristol City. But despite that, despite winning, uh, hopes of qualifying for Europe and for the Champions League are, are basically done. Arsenal won at Everton this weekend, meaning that they have both a three-point advantage and a massive goal difference compared to United. And that's going into the final game of the WSL season next weekend. United would have to win by like 10 goals against Everton, uh, probably more as well, unless Arsenal were beaten themselves by 10 goals. So it's not happening, which is a real shame after a great first half of the season for Casey Stoney's side, but it's all injuries and, uh, and I guess some people would say mentality, but injuries certainly haven't helped, especially to Leah Galton, uh, Tobin Heath and Alessia Russo, all three of whom were pretty important players and were out for a considerable amount of time each. Didn't help as United kind of slid off in the second half of the table, having been at the top of the WSL for a couple of weeks at one point. So that's a shame, but decent foundations to go into the summer with and, and build on next season. Jack, I thought Roma, I mean, we've just spoken about it, but I've, I've, Roma were surprisingly bad. They got very unlucky with injuries, of course. Um, and Spinozola looked really threatening. Uh, I think he was playing a left wing back. But as a team, I was surprised at, at how open and weak they were in defence. Um, even though they, they threatened in attack, every time they broke forward in the first half, at least, they looked really threatening in the second half. That, that kind of it dropped off. But I mean, a miracle is needed for them to overcome that 6-2 thing and, and we should be going into a final. But I, I guess Solskjaer, especially now we, that Liverpool game has been postponed and probably and isn't going to be played on Monday night because we're recording this before Monday night. So it won't be played this week. A bit of rest. Obviously, there's Villa on Sunday, but the league isn't quite as important. I think Solskjaer will want to carry the momentum on and probably play a pretty strong team against Roma, maybe give a chance to a couple of fringe players like perhaps Mata or Ahmad or, or someone like that. Well, I mean, the fans have given the players a, a rest, so we finally got a, another whole week off now <laughs> after the protests. Yeah, I don't expect us to to go too, um, to rotate too much. I think... It would have it would have been easy, and I think probably a lot of us immediately after the game were thinking that we'll just play a lot of uh, rotation players, a lot of the youth players. But I don't think that will be the case. I think Solskjaer will want to to do the game justice and put out a relatively strong team. And to be honest, why wouldn't you? Like I, I, I said that facetiously, but they the the, we, the players now have had one of the biggest rests they've had in in a long time. You know, we've had a midweek off a couple of weeks ago, another whole week off now between the Europa League um, semi-final two legs. So, I mean, why wouldn't you put out a relatively strong team? And to be honest, if we're playing as well as we did against Roma, you also don't want to lose that rhythm. So there will, I'm sure, be a few changes, but I don't think it will be wholesale across the pitch. Yeah, and I don't think it should be. At this point in the season with, I think we were checking this just before we started recording, I think seven games left of this season if, if barring something ridiculous, United get to the, uh, to the Europa League final. I think that would be our, our final and, and seventh remaining game. Um, so at, at this point in the season, you're kind of not really needing to, to give your fringe players quite as much time. Um, you, you, United need to keep that momentum going because, even in the league, I think we're four points ahead of Leicester, obviously now with a game in hand, but 
United want to finish very comprehensively and comfortably second. And to do that, we need to try and win all of our games. Villa on Sunday. Uh, it's, well, I haven't watched Villa as much in recent weeks as I did in the first half of the season because Jack Grealish hasn't been playing for them. And that was kind of the main reason I was watching them because I was absolutely loving watching Grealish in the first half of the season, especially with Watkins doing really well up front. Have you caught much of Villa in the last kind of month or two? A little bit. Um, what, from what I've seen, it's been quite inconsistent. Still a relatively dangerous side with the likes of Watkins, El Ghazi, Bertrand Traore, but definitely not not the same threat that they were when we you know we played them. Was it back in January? And it was a, a brilliant yeah. game. Um, we we played quite well with Eric Bailly's last minute block to stop Grealish from scoring a likely equaliser. I, I don't expect it to be quite that good. I think injuries and luck have kind of caught up with Villa and, and you know dropped them down the table but they're still a very difficult team to face they're pretty good defensively you know I expect it to be a game where we dominate the ball and Villa are trying to hit us on the counter-attack where they are still remain even without Grealish very very dangerous like I said the the trio of Watkins, El Ghazi and Traore have been, have been playing very well a lot of goal involvements between them and I think will cause us a lot of problems in defence yeah yeah I agree um I think, yeah, no, no Greenish is a pretty big impact, but yeah, the bits I have seen of Philo in recent weeks, they still have that, that real edge to them in attack that yeah. causes problems in January and, and still will. Um, in terms of, I, I was going to say like, I was starting to think about who we'd play in, but the truth is United at the moment, this team kind of, there's very little worries about team news now, I think. Yeah. No, I completely agree. It, every, kind of the, the team that's named kind of seems to suit most of the time. And that is the that is the fickle nature of football, but it's the truth as well. And I also think that we, we are a team that is capable of playing so many different ways as well. So I think regardless of who, of who starts, we, we tend to be able to adapt relatively well to, to suit the players that are, that are playing. The, the biggest question mark at the moment is really just whether, well, who's going to play in, as the two in midfield, whether it'll be McTominay and Fred or whether Pogba will get dropped a little bit deeper, which he hasn't for quite a while. Yeah. And then whether Greenwood or Cavani will start really is, is sort of the big, the big question mark at the moment and everything else. Yeah. It sort of slots, slots, it slots into place. Yeah. And McTominay's future is an interesting one. I was rereading some quotes from Solskjaer from, I can't, he scored in the FA Cup West Ham. Uh, in, in February and I think after the game Solskjaer was, was asked about him and said we're trying to get McTominay into more scoring positions and get him further up the pitch which I thought was interesting and we haven't seen we haven't had a long enough time to see that yet but it's certainly something worth keeping an eye on it was just I reread those quotes and made, kind of made a mental note to keep an eye on that because McTominay has shown his ability to to do that and I don't think he's a holding midfielder or defensive midfielder Um I think his best role, maybe it's not best for United. That's what, people have opinions either way, but I think his best role is going to be as a box to box midfielder using his, his physicality and um, energy in that way. Um, we're going to wrap things up and, and go on to our patron Q and a, thank you very much for listening everyone to what has been a on and off the pitch discussion. I um, hope you enjoyed it. Let us know your thoughts. I'm eager to hear uh, what, 
United fans think of, of Sunday's events because it, it remains divided. There are United fans who support it, United fans who support part of it and United fans who are very much against it. And uh, all of those opinions are are allowed and respected. So let us know what you think. I'd be interested to hear. But for more from Jack um, on Twitter throughout the week, you can find him at UTD Tate, T-A-I-T. And you can find me on Twitter at Harry Robinson 64 on the podcast itself at UTD Weekly Pod. That's P-O-D at the end there. Until Sunday or Monday after we've hopefully got into the Europa League final, first final under Ole Gunnar Solskjaer and played Aston Villa away in the Premier League. We'll speak to you then, but have a great week. Goodbye. Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.